George Matheson, in a prayer, prays this in response to Jesus being the light of the world. He says, O Lord, as long as I am apart from you, I am self-satisfied because I have no standard by which to measure my low stature. But when I come near to you, there for the first time I see myself. In your light, I behold my darkness. In your purity, I behold my corruption. My very confession of sin is the fruit of holiness. O divine man, let me gaze on you more and more until in the vision of your brightness, I loathe, I hate the sight of my impurity. Until in the blaze of that glory which human eye has not seen, I fall prostrate, blinded, broken, to rise again a new man in you. I have a small hope and goal for us today, and that is that when we would leave this place, as we continue in our Advent series, The Gift of the Incarnation, that we would have such an understanding of Jesus as the light of the world that our response would be that of a complete and total, awe-filled submission of him and to him. It's a really small goal that I have for us today. And I don't want to pretend that this is a brand new concept for anyone. I know that maybe this is your 20th Christmas Advent season, or your 40th, or your 60th, I won't go past 60 years to date anyone past that, but maybe you've heard the Christmas story a lot. You've heard the Christmas narrative a lot. You've sung songs about Jesus being the light of the world, but whether or not this is your 50th time or your first time uh, during this Christmas Advent season hearing about these things, this is a story and a moment in our redemptive history that we should revisit frequently so that we can take in the full magnificent and monumental reality of the birth of Jesus. And this is why I love the Gospel of John, is that he tells the same Christmas story that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell, just from a very different perspective. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke, goodness gracious, Nathan, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, hello, wake up. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three Gospels all share the same kind of Christmas story that we're familiar with uh, of Jesus, of uh, the inn being too full, so they have to go to this cave-like stable where then Jesus is put into a literal food trough. The wise men come and visit him. Shepherds are scared by angels. Uh, and then you have the, the animals all bowing down to him like Simba in The Lion King. This is kind of the same wonderful, warm story that we're familiar with hearing. And John tells the exact same story as these three Gospels, just from a different, different perspective. Because what John is trying to show is the real reality that was taking place when this baby was born. John's Christmas story reveals that the baby that was growing in the womb of Mary is the same God who has knitted each of us together in our own mother's womb. John is trying to reveal that the Jesus who was placed in the manger as one day old, who who is dependent on Mary to change his dirty diapers and to comfort him when he's crying, is the same God who we call comforter and confidant. John is trying to show that this Jesus who has to learn how to walk and has to learn how to formulate words is the same God whose words create and sustain all things. John's birth narrative, John's Advent story, John's Christmas story is just as, as much the Christmas story as all these others, he's just showing that the birth of Jesus was the first and foundational step of redemptive history for the entire cosmos. John pulls back the curtain on this cute and quaint little uh, story that kids do plays of as to say, do you really see what's happening here? Do you really understand what's taking place? The God of the universe has become that which he is not. He has become flesh. He has become like us. He has become weak for a very specific purpose. And it's a purpose that we get to talk about today in John 1, 4 and 5, where he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John reveals that an aspect of this whole picture of this story, that when Jesus came into the world, it wasn't just the word being made flesh. It was the dawn of light breaking into the darkness. And he introduces this concept of light and darkness. And I'm pretty fairly certain that all of us are familiar with this concept of light and darkness, mainly because all the movies that we watch, all the books that you read, all the TV shows that you binge, they all seem to have this same idea of light and dark, good and bad running throughout it. Whether it's the Jedi and the Sith, Harry Potter and Voldemort, whether it's Frodo and Sauron, whether it's Michael Scott and Toby, they all have this idea of light and darkness running throughout the world, good and evil. But this morning, it's important for us that we are not placing what we understand about light and darkness based on culture and society that we live in into the context of this story. Because John here was intentionally writing these words in such a way, formulating these sentences in such a way that would have played to their cultural and contextual cues. He's trying to get the readers of this gospel to understand that there is a line that has been drawn between the beginning of creation and the beginning of Christ. Just look at Genesis 1, 1 through 5, where we see the beginning of the world created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated light from the darkness. What we see is at the beginning of time, there existed this darkness. That when God spoke all things into creation, in that first moment, there was this darkness. The Hebrew word implies a fogged obscurity, an unknown, a a chaos that dwelt in the world, making this world lacking function and form. So that it was really just a floating ball in the cosmos that didn't really have anything or purpose or reality. All until the word speaks, let there be light. And in an instant moment, we witness an explosion of the first steps of order from chaos, all because this light brought about a reality, a purpose, and a restoration into the cosmos by separating light from darkness. This is what the light does when spoken by the word. It creates, it restores, and it reveals And this is what makes John 1, 4, and 5 that much more impactful because John here is intentionally drawing a line between the creation of the world and the the beginning of Christ as to say the light of the world has come. And it is this same light that we see in Genesis 1 that is going to separate light from darkness. That is going to be a beacon shining in the midst of the darkness so that we can have a new creation, so that we can have life restored to us, and so that we can see the real realities around us that has been diminished and darkened by darkness darkness, by chaos, by this fogged obscurity. And what it does, and what I think is a small, beautiful portion of this story, is that he doesn't just simply say, let there be light, and it's this explosion again. He comes laboring in, in a slow, arduous process of growing a baby in the womb. He comes in the middle of a night, in the silent of the night, crying, crying almost as to, to, to tell the darkness that light has blinked into this world. The light has come in order to bring order from chaos by casting out the darkness that has distorted, diminished, and dulled the real reality around us. 
Most of you all know that I have a daughter, and uh, her name is Tatum Bell Beer. I'm going to use every opportunity that I can possibly. Yeah, Z, thank you. Yeah, give it up. Um, Tatum Bell, and uh, she's six weeks old, which basically means that she's a teenager now, and she is acting like a teenager, let me tell you what. But I figured, what better way to introduce her to everyone today on her first Sunday than to get to use her as an illustration? Um, so we're going to have Tatum come up here. First service did not get this, by the way. So, hey, snaps. She's asleep. Snaps, snaps. Thank you, thank you. I don't, want, I don't want her to wake up. Come, you little baby. I'm not going to lie. When Mark does this, I'm always so terrified he's going to drop the baby. And so it's, I'm happy that I get to. Mark gave me permission to introduce her. And I was like, thank goodness. Because whenever he comes down those steps to grab her, I'm always like, oh, my gosh, do not trip. Anyways, this is Tatum. What, can you see her? I mean, she's right here. <laughs> right? Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay, this is Tatum. She's about uh, six pounds, eight ounces, baby Jesus, lying in a manger. I'm distracted now. You should not have given me a baby. Tatum. Oh, gosh. I'm praying she doesn't spit up on me. Um, And if you hear a noise, it's not me. It's her. Okay. Tatum is wonderful, obviously. We have loved her so much. She has finally started to smile at us and start to be able to like be awake. But for the first five weeks, honestly, she was kind of boring simply because she couldn't really see anything. Everything was just this massive blur to her. And all of you probably are still just one giant blob. And that's not offensive or anything like that. That's just the reality that she can't really see. But there's one thing that Tatum sees really, really well, and it's light. At home, she finds the Christmas lights on her tree or a ceiling fan that has a light on or a lamp beside her changing table. And she will just fixate on that light because it's the only thing that she can really see. I'm going to have to hand her back. Everyone say goodbye to Tatum. I'll let you come up here. That way I don't hand her on the stairs. That would be stupid. Don't show yourself off, girl. Tatum can only really see light, and it's the same for us today. All we can really see is a giant blur, a giant mass because of this darkness that is covering around us, because the reality is that the imprint of God is everywhere. God has revealed himself in all things. When he spoke in Genesis 1, 1 through 5, let there be light, he placed himself in all things. By his word, he creates, and by his word, he sustains. So everything in this world has imprints of God in it, whether it's a sunset that looks like it's been intentionally painted, whether it's the birth process. I encourage you for 30 minutes a day, just go look up all of the intricate things that has to take place in a sequence of events in order for even a baby to come from zero uh, zero days old to being in this world it will scream that there is an intentional hand at work. The imprint of God is in the arts. It's not two particles of nothing that collided together and we've evolved to just start weeping at a a picture that hangs on a wall or that we feel some sort of way when we hear a song or that we can be empathetic towards a movie. The arts scream that the creator has imparted on his creation a sense of his own creativity. All of these things are imprints of God. He has put himself on display for us to see, and yet we can't see God. We have missed God in all of these things, all because of a darkness that has covered our eyes with a fog of obscurity. 
It's Romans 1, 8, 18 through 21. Paul speaks to this condition and says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the reality. Oh, she did spit up actually. No one was going to tell me that, huh? That's okay. We'll just, we'll just do with that. This is the reality that we live in today. And so, though, out of God's great love for us, he sends to us the one thing that we can actually see, which is a light. A light that's described in Hebrews 1, verse 3, as the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus has come in such a way to be a direct imprint of the entirety of God. The fullness of God dwells in one man so that when we see him, we see the radiance of the glory of God. The light of the world has come. The dawn of light has broken into the darkness. And I realize it's not the most Christmassy thing to talk about this morning, but if we're going to talk about the light of the world, we have to talk about the darkness that exists in the world and around the world. In J.R. Tolkien's Hobbit, he describes darkness in a beautiful way or a haunting way like this. He says, it cannot be seen, cannot be felt, cannot be heard, cannot be smelt. It lies behind the stars and under the hills and empty holes it fills. It comes first and follows after, ends life and kills Laughter. Merry Christmas. This is the darkness, though, that has existed from the beginning of time in Genesis 1. The darkness that was in the deep of the void. This darkness is this thing that is fogging our reality. It's creating a chaos. It's creating a lack of function and fulfillment in this world. The darkness is this thing that is external and internal. It's the nature of darkness, the nuanced nature of darkness that makes it so difficult for us to identify. Because darkness is not just found in one boogeyman that we can just attribute everything towards. And darkness isn't just found in just our own sin. Darkness is everywhere. It's in the world where we see the corrupted condition polluting this world so that this world is not functioning in the way that it was created to. Uh, We see darkness in our enemy, in Satan, a very real and tangible enemy who is constantly working to steal, kill, and destroy He's an enemy who's working in the shadows of chaos in this world. And then there is this internal aspect of darkness. It's our own flesh. It's this aspect of us that cannot see God. It's this aspect that is blinded to God because of our innate nature, because we have been born of someone named Adam. Thanks a lot, Adam. Darkness is not simply just Satan. You can't sum it up to that. Also, side note, every time I typed out Satan in this message, it changed it to Santa. I was dying laughing this whole sermon. It's not just Satan. It's not just sin. It's so much more nuanced than that. It's a fog that suddenly dampens and distorts the real reality around us. And in that, we find the goal of darkness. The goal is not to make us hate the light. 
Darkness's goal is not even to destroy the light. In John 1 verse 5, it says the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness knows that it is defeated. And so the, I would actually even go as far as to say that darkness isn't even trying to prevent us from coming to believe that there is a God. Darkness's goal in its broad form is simply to dull, diminish, and distort the real reality until we can't make out what anything really is because our vision is so blurred. And we can see manifestations of this darkness everywhere. That's the problem. We don't see the darkness itself. We just see the manifestations of darkness. And we could talk about a bunch of different things here today, but I truly believe that here in the buckle of the Bible Belt, in Anderson, South Carolina, here at Hope Fellowship even, darkness has manifested itself in a very specific way, and it's through a spirit of apathy. An indifference for pursuing God after you have come to know God. An apathy that makes us content with having God as a side dish or a trophy up on the wall that we can pull down and admire whenever we want to or when we can snack on and nibble on when it's 11 o'clock at night and we're a little hungry. An apathy that lulls us into unintentionally living in such a way that turns God into a cute cultural addition rather than a radically reshaped way of living. An apathy that makes you indifferent for whether or not you really experience the tangible presence of God more than once or twice a year. An apathy that makes you content with a small bite of God because we have become so stuffed with the world. And herein lies the danger of darkness is that darkness uses the same thing that light uses to cause us to adore God to distort our image of God. Darkness and light are going to use the same things. It will use his creation, but just in vastly different ways with vastly different purposes. That same thing of this world that stirs adoration in our heart towards God to make us want to glorify and worship him is the same thing that darkness will use to draw our attention onto this world, making it seem as if this is the most important thing, making us live in such a way that this life is all we got and we have a bonus heaven after it, but we got to make the most of this one. And if we unintentionally engage with the things of this world, then without realizing it, one day your spouse is going to become your idol. Your kids are going to be your complete source of identity. And your job is going to be where you find all of your fulfillment. If we are unintentional with how we engage with this world, we will slowly but surely become apathetic in the way that we pursue Jesus and live out the call that he has placed in our lives because we will have started to live and love something different than God himself. I love the words of Solomon to his son in Proverbs 3. It's words that Cassie and I spoke over our daughter when she was born. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. This is God's intention for us as we live out this life. He wants to be the genuine total center of our life. He wants to be the center. He wants to be the shield. He he wants to be integrated into every aspect of your life from the minute to the massive so that we live this life filtering every single decision we make, every single word that we speak, every single relationship that we get into, every single movie that we watch, every single tweet that we tweet, post that we post. Everything we do runs through this filter of God. So it means to trust in the Lord with all of your heart, not just aspects, bits, and pieces of it, reserving some for yourself so that you can enjoy it yourself without having to give it to him. This is God's intention for us, but darkness deforms us into people who keep God on the side as a nice little addition to our life while living out our lives for ourselves and for this world and for those in it. 
This has been a message that has been on my heart for the past year. There's been bits and pieces of it everywhere. If you're in a college group, I'm sorry. You're probably hearing this again for the umpteenth time. If you're in men's breakfast, I'm sorry. If we've gotten a coffee and we've had a conversation for more than 30 minutes, I've most likely brought this up because it has been something that has been so aggravatingly stirring in my heart that I wish I could just get rid of, but it's been a pounding drum in my ears because I don't want to see us hope fellowship. I don't want to see you sitting in the pew just be content with a couple of baptisms a year or a couple of fun family events that we throw every single year or content with just keeping our gospel conversations in our home groups and our community groups. I don't want to be content with just engaging in the tangible presence of God a couple times a year. I want us to be a church. I want you to be a person that is a bulwark, a staple, a monument of the creative and active power of the Spirit. I want us to be a church that hungers for God more than we hunger for the world. I want us to be a church that other people look at and go, they're a little weird over there. They take their faith a little bit too seriously, like chill out with it. What a compliment that would be. I want us to be a church where faith isn't just a part of our culture. It is the entirety of our identity by which we view this whole world. I want us to be a church that would experience a revival Not one scheduled in a tent where people are passing out left and right. And I'm having to, I worked a revival one time when I was younger. And my job was to cover up the ladies who fell. And uh, what a terrible job that was. Because if they were wearing a dress, cover up with a uh, holy towel. Hallelujah. So not one that's scheduled in a tent, but one that is instigated and cultivated and propagated by the power of the Holy Spirit through the desire of his people. But we're not going to be this kind of church. We're not going to be a people who are spirit-filled catalysts for the outbreaking of his presence in this community if we love and we live in darkness. My concern is that we hear messages like this or like a message that Pastor Matthew preached a couple of weeks ago and we go, yeah, that's not for me. You're going to hear this and you go, well, that was a terrible message or a great message. And then you're not going to change a single thing about your life. My concern is that we have left being a people of consequence, understanding that this world and everything in it has the power to either deform us more into the world or transform us more into the person that God has created us to be, that we have lost the sense of consequence because of a cheap grace that has dulled our view of our faith. My concern is that because of the darkness around us and in us, this radical life that God has called us to live, a hard and radical life that he has called and bought for us and enabled in us, has been dampened and doled down to live a good life, read your Bible every single day, pay for a couple people's things when you can, and make sure your kids get a good scholarship and don't kill anyone. It's like our faith is so much more than that. It's so much more than the normal humdrum of life. But if we're not careful, if we're unintentional with this world and how we're living, whether you're a single mom of four kids or a retired couple with $1.2 million in the bank, If we're not careful, the spirit of apathy will slowly cover our eyes so that our groups that are here, our events that we hold, and each of us that attend here will slowly curve inward so that we never leave the comfort of our own homes or our own lives. And I'm not saying that I do this well. I stink at this like Tatum's dirty diapers, okay? I resonate with Paul when he says, yo, I am terrible at this. He doesn't say exactly like that, but something along the lines. But just because I struggle with this doesn't mean I don't want to try. I've tasted and seen that he is good. 
I have realized that what I know about Jesus is just the tip of the iceberg. I realize that what I am experiencing of his presence is just a small taste that is waiting if I would just press in, if I would just go deeper into him. I realize how easy it is for this world to subtly and and slowly slip us into this monotony and this apathy. We can get caught up in the podcasts and shows and there's people to hang out with and there's jobs to do around their house and bills to pay and things to take care of for you and your family. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those things, but what I am saying is that if you are living so unintentionally in your life that you are not aware of how those things are forming you, then maybe you have a spirit of apathy that's hovering over your faith, causing you to not only just pursue God less, but experience God less. We have been called to engage in a world covered in darkness with an intentional awareness as to how every single moment in this life has the power to shape us. And this is the call that Jesus invites us into as a light of the world, that we can either live in the light or we can continue to love the darkness. And Jesus speaks this word of judgment in John three nineteen. Right after, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. He says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When the light is shining, he is either your refuge or your ruin. There is no gray area when it comes to the light. The light is the radiance of the glory of God. It's, you cannot hide things in the light. You can deny that the light is shining. You can try to cover it back up, but nothing is going to cover up this light. If he is shining, you have two choices. Follow the light or don't. I, I, I ask you to find one story in the Gospels where Jesus says, hey, try out Jesus for 15 years and then um, get back to me and see what you think of it. Hey, maybe try like picking up a quarter of your cross today and just see how it makes you feel. If you like how it makes you feel, come on, come follow me. He says, follow me and the disciples immediately drop their nets in Mark 1. He tells the rich young ruler eventually when he says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? He says, you must sell everything. He says to pick up your cross daily and follow him, to crucify your flesh. This is not a one foot in the door, one foot out type of living. And yet the spirit of apathy makes us think that we can kind of do this number and like kind of say, hey God, and then come over here and live out our life how we want to live it. To walk by the light is to live in an exposed and obedient life in complete submission to Jesus as not just your savior, but as your king. It's a beauty that he does everything for you and a reality that he requires everything from you. And this is why people got turned off to Jesus. They loved Jesus, the Savior, that died for our sins. They loved the Jesus that walked on the water and turned water into wine, making it a real party. Let's go. They loved this type of Jesus, but they hated the Jesus who was the king, asking for our whole lives to follow him because it exposed what they were really living for what they were living in. The Gospels, if you read them, you'll see that the greatest obstacle to fellowship, to following Jesus is not morality, or sorry, is not immorality, it was morality. 
the people who have the biggest problem with Jesus, the people who are continually trying to tear him down and overcome him, the people who eventually get him killed and, spoiler alert, he doesn't stay dead, the people who are against Jesus the most are those who were seen in society's eyes as the most moral and the most righteous, who were the ones who thought that they had it together, and yet Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs that look good on the outside but have rotting bones on the inside. And yet those who were prostitutes, thieves, greedy tax collectors, poor in spirit, broken, were drawn to Jesus. Why is this? It's because he is either going to be your refuge or your ruin when you see him. To the moral who think they are good and righteous, Jesus is their ruin because he reveals that they are not. But to the immoral who are broken, and poor in spirit, Jesus is their refuge because they see that he is everything that they are not and cannot possibly be. There's a great book by uh, Dane Ortland. It's called Deeper, and it's about going deeper in your faith. Who would have thought? And it touches on this idea of darkness and light in the world and just this idea of apathy. He calls it a boring faith. It's this apathy that, that diminishes and distorts our soul so that we don't find God sufficient enough, so that we don't find God as desirable as his creation. And so we end up living out this life uh, that is he calls a boring faith or what we would call an apathetic faith. But what I find interesting in his book is that he has a solution to this. And this is what he says. He says, you cannot feel the weight of your sinfulness strongly enough. It's an act of remembering the sin that once held you captive. And it's remembering it frequently, strongly. It's not a, a, a remembering that's going to bring shame or it shouldn't bring shame into your life. And it's not, a, it's not a weight that should be beating you up over and over and over again. It's a weight that should cause us to constantly turn and desperately run to the light. We are to be a people who remind ourselves the weight of our sinfulness so that you would be desperate in your need of him. In your desperation, desire will always grow. The more desperate you feel for God, the more desire you're going to have to engage with his tangible presence. Let me tell you what, I hate preaching for one specific reason. That is I just get really, really, really bad anxiety. But the weeks that I'm leading, the week that I'm leading up to preaching, my prayer life is like, whoo, because I'm desperate. Because I know who I am. I know how broken I am. I know that I can't even practice what I preach 100% of the time. And so it makes me desperate because I don't want to seem like a hypocrite. I don't want to seem like a bully. I don't want to seem like someone who's just up here just like nonchalantly taking the word of God out of context or all these things. I have all of these anxieties. And so what it does is it makes me desperate. And in my desperation, my desire to engage in his presence grows more and more and more. The moment that we lose sight of our sinfulness, of our condition, is the moment that darkness has fogged our eyes. We are to be a people who remind ourselves of this so that we can recognize that I'm not enough, but God is enough. God, I'm not holy, but you are holy. God, I'm not perfect, but you're perfect. God, I am weak, but God, you are strong. God, I must decrease, but you must increase. God, I am unable, but you are able. God, I am not God, but you are. If you become desperate, 
you will experience this desire like a deer pants for waters so our soul will pant for him and so this is my plea to those of you today who are living in the darkness who are covering things up who are denying that the light is even shining for those of you who have said to God not yet maybe tomorrow or I just simply can't do what you're asking when I say I know how scary it is to bring something up into the light, you get those sweaty palms, you're not sure how who you have to tell is going to react to that reality. I can tell you how hard it is to give something up that you have loved and placed above God, especially when it's something that you have to continue to engage with and in. I know the struggle to crucify your flesh daily because I struggle to do it every single day, but I also know the reality from John 1, 4, and 5 that nothing does not truly live if not living in the light. You are never going to have the life that the darkness promises you if you stay in the darkness. I love what C.S. Lewis says through a character in Until We Have Faces. He says, die before you die. There is no chance after. Die before you die. There is no chance after. This is not a simple or easy call. But if you are tired of having an apathetic faith, if you're just frustrated, or even if you don't even realize it, and you have just been living out this life, and faith is just your culture, not who you are. Die before you die. There is no chance afterwards. The light is shining. His name is Jesus, and he has come to expose and expel the darkness in the world, showing us that he is the way to life more abundant and free. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, as long as we are apart from you, we are self-satisfied because we have no standard by which to measure our low stature. When we come near to you as you are near and dear to us, there for the first time we see ourselves. In your light we behold the darkness that has gripped us, has captivated us, and has blinded us. In your purity, God, we behold our corruption. Our very confession of sin is the fruit of holiness. It's the fruit of the light shining in us and around us and through us. Oh, divine man, let us gaze on you more and more until the vision of your brightness, we loathe the sight of our impurity. Until in the blaze of that glory, which human eye has not seen, each of us in this room would fall prostrate on the ground, on our knees before your throne, broken and blinded to rise again, a new man and woman in you. God, I pray in the name of Jesus for those of us who are walking in darkness, who are living in darkness and who are loving darkness, that you would free them by the light, that you would blink your light into existence in their hearts, in their minds, in their spirits. God, I pray for those whose bodies are breaking down in and on them they would see, God, that this is you pointing to them, that you are a healer, you are a provider, God, you are a sustainer, and you are a
real life. God, I pray for those of, the, uh, of us who are in, in our minds are going, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I don't really know why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. God, I pray that you would heal that mind by the power of your light. You would reveal their purpose, their gifts, and that you are their fulfillment. For those of us who are hurting in our spirit, who just feel like there is something off, I pray that you would reveal the darkness that has covered. God, I pray that we would be a church that is not apathetic towards you and passionate about the world, but that we would passionately pursue you with our whole life while stewarding the things that you have given us. I pray that this call reigns supreme in this church today and forever. I pray that we would be a bulwark of your spirit.